We're going to be in Esther chapter 8 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as we continue this study of this great Old Testament narrative. If you were here last week when we studied Esther 7, Haman was hung for his evil plan to annihilate God's chosen people, the Jews. And while that was certainly a moment for rejoicing, Haman's death does not end the edict to have God's people destroyed. The edict that he had set that went throughout all 127 provinces is not completely over yet. So even though the bad guy of the story is gone, the death of God's chosen people is still possible. And last week we learned that because God is faithful to his covenant people, evil will not ultimately prevail. And that was demonstrated through the hanging of Haman. But now we arrive at chapter 8, and we'll begin this morning in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script. And their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. We have talked throughout our study of Esther this theme that is very prevalent And that is the theme of reversal. And today we're going to see in chapter 8 that the author is trying to be very intentional to show us how God's people's circumstances have been reversed here in chapter 8. So be ready to flip back and forth throughout some of the earlier chapters as we emphasize this theme. Today we will learn... That because God loves and cares for his covenant people, he can take the worst circumstances and reverse them for the good of his people. And that's going to be demonstrated in this text through, number one, a change in leadership, number two, a new edict, and number three, a spared people. So, a change in leadership, a new edict, and a spared people. Number one, a change in leadership. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them again. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, ancient historians tell us that when a traitor to the king was executed, the king had the right to take the property of the executed individual and bestow it to someone else. And in this context, the king takes all of the property belonging to Haman and gives it to Queen Esther. And because Esther is so close to Mordecai, she immediately brings him in before the king and the signet ring, which at one time rested comfortably on Haman's hand, is transferred to Mordecai's. This is a reversal of what happened in chapter 3, verse 10, when it says, So the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So here we have the first reversal in this chapter. All of the power and authority was originally given to Haman through the wearing of the king's signet ring. Now that is reversed. It is taken from Haman and put on Mordecai. And in verse 3 of chapter 8, 
Esther's moment to shine has finally arrived. Remember, she made a promise in chapter 4 that even if it cost her her life, she would go before the king and plead for the Jewish people. And there is a lot that has happened between when she said that in chapter 4 and what we read here in chapter 8. She has thrown multiple banquets for the king and Haman. Haman constructed a plan to have Mordecai killed for refusing to bow down. Esther reveals this plan to the king. Haman is finally hung and killed. And each of these stories within the larger story of Esther is preparing us for this very moment in chapter 8. When Esther will be bold and courageous to go before Ahasuerus. And she throws herself before the king, the text tells us. And she weeps with the king to reverse the plan that Haman had set in effect. And in verse 4, the king holds out the golden scepter. Which earlier, we know... That Esther had told Mordecai, I will never be able to go before the king unless he holds out the golden scepter. So here is what she says. Here is her shining moment in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther is bold, courageous, but also respectful in her response to the king. Perhaps you've heard of the expression, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. I really butchered that. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And Esther is smart enough to know that if I'm going to go before the king, I need to do so respectfully. And so you see all of these phrases like, if it pleases the king, if I found favor in your sight, if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in your eyes. So she's trying to be very respectful as she brings this up before the king. But something has changed in this moment in chapter 8. Esther is now identifying with God's people in a way that she has not identified with them up to this point. Remember earlier in the narrative, it is Mordecai's suggestion to Esther that she disclose her identity. That she make sure that nobody know that she is a Jew. But in this moment in chapter 8, she identifies with her people in a far more courageous and overt manner. She essentially tells the king that if my people perish, I will not be able to go on. I will not be able to handle it. In the Old Testament, we know that God's people is the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, God's people is the church of Jesus Christ. So the question must be asked of us today as we read Esther's identification with God's people and how much she loved them. The question for us is, do we love the people of this church? 
the way Esther loved her people. Your church should be your people. Your primary community should be your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is this not the picture given to us in the New Testament? In the early chapters of Acts, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is not to say that the church should be our only community. Because we need lost people in our lives. We need lost neighbors, lost co-workers, so that we can proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. But your people is in this room. The church of Jesus Christ, the local expression of that, First Baptist Dothan, this should be your primary community. So make the gathering and the collection and the love and the fellowship of God's chosen people expressed in this local body a top priority in your life. And this change in leadership that we see here in Esther 8 is ultimately complete when Ahasuerus talks to Esther and Mordecai and tells them that they can write as they please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and that it will be sealed with the king's signet ring. So Esther and Mordecai in this moment have now been given full power and full authority to reverse the effects of Haman's decree that he had sent out chapters earlier. Which brings us to Our second point, we see a new edict or a new decree. In verses 9 through 12, we have this new edict being written to spare the Jewish people, which, by the way, mirrors a lot of the same details that are in the first edict that Haman gives in chapter 3, verses 12 and 15. The question is, why didn't Ahasuerus just do away with the edict that Haman implemented? And the answer is, because death is not irrevocable. All that Mordecai and Esther could do in this moment is create a new edict that would counteract the measures that Haman had put in place. Not only is death irrevocable, but also for the king to go back on the initial decree that Haman wrote would be a threat to his honor and damaging to his pride as king. So in Esther 3, we're told that Haman's edict was written on the 13th day of the first month. In Esther 8, Mordecai's edict was written on the 23rd day of the third month. Both edicts were given to everyone in their provinces, in their own scripts, and in their own languages. Both edicts were written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring. But Haman's edict said that the Jewish people would be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. But look at Mordecai's edict in verse 11. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. 
and to plunder their goods. Now, when I said children and women included, people were squirming in their seats. This is very uncomfortable. But what you should know is that in the Old Testament context in which we're reading, what Mordecai is authorizing here is a form of holy war. Remember that Haman's edict against the Jewish people was not just created out of personal frustration with Mordecai, even though that's part of it, but an expression also of the long-standing conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who reigned during King Saul's reign mentioned in 1 Samuel 15. Why does this matter? Because in 1 Samuel 15, if you remember, Saul failed to carry through completely completely with the command that God gave him to destroy the Amalekites. He didn't wipe out all of the Amalekites. He spared King Agag. He spared some of the best cattle and some of the best food. And that was disobedience. And the reason that God told Saul to annihilate the Amalekites goes back even further to Exodus 17 when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and the Amalekites refused to help them. But now, through Mordecai's new decree, he plans to finish what King Saul had left incomplete. Even though the edict allowed the Jewish people to plunder their goods, we will find out later in the story that they don't actually plunder the goods. And you know why they don't do it? Because in holy war, plundering the goods is not allowed. So understanding this background, while maybe not fully putting you at ease with what you read, at least helps you to understand the context. In holy war in the Old Testament, the Israelites are acting as the vessel through which God demonstrates justice and through which God demonstrates his judgment. Now, thankfully, we do not live in this era of history anymore. One commentator helps explain it like this. We have abandoned holy war in its Old Testament form because we live in a different era in the history of redemption. We live in the era of the outpouring of grace. Praise God. In which we fight with spiritual weapons to bring the gospel to the nations, defeating God's enemies by seeing them graciously transformed into friends. Now we fight with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which instead of turning live foes into dead corpses, can transform dead sinners into live saints. The type of wars that we fight today are spiritual in nature. There are people in this room and who live all around us that have been duped by the enemy. They have been deceived. They don't even understand that they are living in sin and that they are enslaved to sin. So how do we fight that type of battle? We fight that type of battle with this. 
We insert the word of God into people's lives. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that the Spirit of God would take these people upon hearing the word of God and change them from dead corpses to alive in Christ. God's judgment, while spared on his chosen people, will not be spared on everyone. The only way out of God's judgment is through identification with the people of God, which is what we see here in verse 17, the very last verse of this chapter. It tells us that all sorts of people suddenly were claiming to be Jews. Why were they claiming to be Jews? So that they could avoid the judgment of God. They wanted to be identified with the people of God so that he would spare his judgment upon them. Even today, people will claim to be Christians because it helps them in their business, it pleases their parents, or because they think that claiming that they are a Christian will mean God's judgment will be spared on them. But simply claiming Christianity does not make one a Christian. In reality, everyone not in Christ is living under an edict of death. And that edict can only be reversed through the regeneration of their hearts, which is a work that God can only do. Repentance of sin, faith in Christ alone, resurrection of Jesus, those are all gifts of God's grace to us. The edict of death that is upon every person not in Christ is only reversed through the death of someone else. The death of Christ on a bloody wooden cross for the sins of his people. The curse of death can only be reversed through Jesus. And when a person places their faith in Christ, a new decree is given to them. And here is that decree. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is the edict, brothers and sisters, that changes lives. That is what moves us from death to life. While we do live in an era of God's grace, holy war is not completely over. Jesus will return. Revelation 19.15, not a comfortable verse to share, but a truthful verse to share. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So that's why we proclaim the gospel. Every opportunity we can. Because God's judgment is going to happen. But if we repent of our sins and place our faith... Is heaven coming down? And place our faith in Christ, we can be spared that judgment and given eternal life. So, non-Christians in the room, please hear me this morning. God loves you. Jesus died for you. He wants relationship with you. Turn to him and be spared the eternal edict of death and hell that is coming upon all who are not in Christ. Number three, we see a spared people. We end our story today on a happy note. As God's chosen people, 
are now spared death. The decree is issued in Susa, the citadel, which, by the way, is the exact place where Haman issued his decree in chapter 3. Haman's decree, we're told, brought confusion to the city of Susa. But Mordecai's decree brought shouting and it brought rejoicing. When Haman's edict was presented in Susa, Mordecai was dressed in sackcloth and ashes because he was mourning the future death of the Jewish people. But with his decree, he comes in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Under Haman's edict, the Jewish people were under the heaviness and burden of impending death. But in Mordecai's edict, we're told the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The great reversal of the fate of the Jewish people has finally come to fruition here in chapter 8. But here's the connection. An even greater reversal is possible for us today through Jesus Christ. The burden of eternal death is overwhelming to think about, which, by the way, is why so many people don't think about death. They don't want to know what happens. But the Bible tells us that we can know that eternal life is possible through Jesus. And that through Jesus we are given the very same things that the Jews receive here in Esther 8. We're given light, gladness, joy, and honor. Under Mordecai's edict, the Jewish people were set free. They were no longer enslaved to their future death. The weight had been lifted from them. But freedom from physical death is not nearly as freeing as freedom from spiritual death. If you desire gladness, joy, light, and honor, Jesus is the only one who can give you that. Moral living, religious rituals, people-pleasing, money, sex, power, all they do is make the burden on your back that much heavier. If you're not in Christ, then you are no different than Mordecai in Esther 3 who is mourning in sackcloth and ashes because he knows that death is coming. But here's the deal. When you're in Christ, you have received the king's royal robe. And you can joyfully anticipate the day when you will feast at the king's table. In Esther chapter 8, verse 15, there's this very interesting phrase. At the very beginning, it says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. Now, he could only have received the royal robes had he been given them by the king. But if you look back in Esther chapter 4, while Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth and ashes, we're told that he couldn't enter the king's gate in sackcloth. He was separated from the king. You see, our sin is like being dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And as long as we're clothed in that, we cannot be in the presence of God. But when we have been dressed in the robe of the righteousness of Christ, we enter into the presence of our God. His Spirit resides in us. In fact, the only way we can be in the presence of God is if Christ has changed our hearts 
from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Christians, you have been reconciled to God today through the righteousness of Jesus. And you have full and complete access to a holy God because you wear the royal robe of Christ's righteousness. But if you are not in Christ today, you are no different than Mordecai as he's mourning in sackcloth and ashes, unable to enter the king's presence. So the call of the gospel today is repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ alone. Receive the robe of the righteousness of Christ. And have his spirit come live inside of you forever. Experience the ultimate great reversal today. And that is freedom from sin and death. So that you might experience freedom for righteousness and life. Let's pray. God, we worship you today. For anyone who is here and they are in Christ, we rejoice and praise you because we have received the robe of the righteousness of Jesus and we have access to you. And for those that are not in Christ, whether they know it or not, They are mourning in sackcloth and ashes. They are separated from you because of their sin. And they must turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone to be reconciled to you. So we pray that your spirit, after the word of God has been sung, read, and proclaimed today, that your word would take root in the hearts of people in this room. And that people would turn from darkness to light through a relationship with you. We love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word that shapes us and transforms us every time we read it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.